theology that you can learn from children. <laughs> and uh, it's amazing how children test your theology. Um, the questions they ask, uh, it, it's pretty amazing how they, they keep you on your toes. And I think it's for that reason Jesus said, let the little children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. I want to talk about the theology of children. Jesus went so far as to say, we have to be like a little child in order to enter the kingdom. Think about that for a little while uh, as we consider what God has for us this morning. Would you bow with me once more as we prepare to hear from God's word? Father in heaven, we thank you that through all things, you have uh, given us the ability to learn um, from every circumstance, whether good or bad, um, if we have ears to hear, if we have eyes to see, hearts to perceive, you can teach us to those who are willing. And so I pray that this morning you would open us to learn. Uh, Lord, I know that in the middle of summer, uh, there's so many things going on, uh, so many different plans we have even for today. And so I pray that you would just help us to settle our thoughts, set aside distractions of what we're doing later today and focus in on your word and what you have for us. Please speak through me, your servant. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old rerun of a TV show from a long time ago that some of you will will remember called Leave It to Beaver. This is even before my time. I I only remember the show from the reruns, but who here ever watched Leave It to Beaver? Anyone? There's There's a couple of hands. So you know, some of you know what I'm talking about. Well, in one episode of Leave it to Beaver, it shows Wally, Eddie Haskell, and the Beaver, and they're making plans to go to the movies to see the new horror film, Voodoo Curse. Now, as they're making these plans to see this this horror movie, overhearing these plans, Wally's mom, Mrs. Cleaver, forbids Wally, in no uncertain terms, that he is not allowed to take Beaver to go and see Voodoo Curse. She then suggests that they go and see Disney's Pinocchio, which is playing as well, instead. And so, put in their place, downcast, the three boys head out to the theater to see Pinocchio. But as they approach the theater, Eddie suggests a way around their problem. He says to Wally, Your mom told you not to take the beaver to see Voodoo Curse. But what if the beaver took you to go see Voodoo Curse? And with that rationalization, they went in to see the movie, convinced that they had done nothing wrong. In doing so, they obeyed the letter of the law, but not the intent. Now, most of us have a similarly complicated relationship with the law or rules in general. For instance, we like it when the law protects us and serves our interests. However, we don't like it when the law gets in our way or tells us what to do. I once read the true story of a woman who called the police department and complained, people are speeding on our street, endangering the lives of children walking on their way to school. You need to do something about it. So the police told her they'd keep a closer eye on her street. The very next morning, she herself was stopped for speeding. But officer, she pleaded, I'm the person who called yesterday to tell you about these speeders. Well then, ma'am, he replied, as he handed her the ticket, you should be happy we caught one. (laughs) Isn't that funny how the law works? We want it to apply to everyone else, but we see ourselves as being the exception. 
But the truth is, the law is the law. It applies to everyone equally. And if we're caught breaking it, we pay the penalty. And this is the consistent message of the Bible throughout. The law of God is the law of God. If you keep it, you will be blessed. All of the good things of God come to those who are obedient to his law. But if you break the law, there will be consequences. There will be penalties. There will be punishment. And Israel would learn this lesson time and again the hard way. Turn with me now to Exodus chapter 19, which Matt read for us earlier this morning. We rejoin the children of Israel along their journey to the promised land. There they are encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. And in verse 1 of chapter 19, we read this. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out for Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Now, it was here in front of this mountain, Mount Sinai, that through Moses, God would give his law, his decrees, his rules to Israel. The most famous and foundational of all these laws was, of course, the Ten Commandments. Now, what I'd like to highlight for you today is that there are things that the law can do and things that the law can't do. So if you're following along with me, I'm going to exchange from one to the other. First, giving you one thing the law can do, and then one thing the law can't do. And so the first thing I'd like to highlight for you this morning is the first thing that the law can do. And that is the law can protect us. Now, laws, of course, were never made or designed to make us feel warm and fuzzy. In fact, they often seem cold and intimidating. And so these feelings are often associated with the people who give us the laws. So in receiving these laws from God, the nation of Israel came to view God as holy and intimidating. Someone to be feared and revered, but never approached. In fact, it was God himself who made certain this occurred. For when his divine presence would descend on Mount Sinai, God instructed them in chapter 19, verses 12 to 13, with this instruction. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Does this sound warm and fuzzy? Not even close. This sounds harsh. This sounds over the top, severe. Why would God do this? Why would he have something so hostile, so intimidating, as one of the first instructions he gives the people? Well, I'll tell you why. The reason was, it was not intended to be harsh, it was intended to protect. You see, the limits or barricades around the mountain are a perfect analogy for the law itself. Think of the law as a guardrail on the side of a tall bridge, or a chain-link fence at the top of a hydroelectric dam, or, or the chain-link fence around the bottom of the, the hydro lift station in town. The things inside are extremely dangerous. If we enter them, we think, oh, I'm okay, but they can very quickly lead to death. 
And the law is a protection. It is a fence around these things. Just as those things are put there to keep us from harming or killing ourselves by the danger on the other side, in this case, God instructed the people to put up a a limit, a fence around the bottom of Mount Sinai to protect the people from himself. Now that seems strange. Why would God need to protect the people from himself? Why? Because God is perfectly holy. Not a speck of sin or darkness is in him. There is no evil residing in God's presence. And so for a sinful people like Israel to go up the mountain, to enter directly into his divine presence, sinful as they were, bringing their impurity, their wickedness with them, they would be instantly destroyed. And God knew that. In the Harrison Ford film that some of you may or may not have seen called K-19, The Widowmaker, It's based on the true story of the seemingly cursed Soviet nuclear submarine that by a series of mistakes and malfunctions, the result was that the sub's nuclear reactor begins to overheat, and if left unchecked, it would explode, killing everyone in the sub, of course, and possibly even those further away. An engineering team conceives a plan to rig a makeshift cooling system which would, however, require men to enter into the reactor core itself. However, as they prepared to enter the reactor core to put on this makeshift cooling system, they discover that the submarine has been mistakenly supplied with chemical suits rather than radiation suits. The chemical suits, of course, would be absolutely useless in protecting the men from the deadly radiation. Nonetheless, the men still don the chemical suits And the teams enter the reactor core and are instructed to work in 10-minute shifts to limit the radiation exposure. The first group emerges from from the chamber vomiting, heavily blistered. The second and third teams succeed in cooling the reactor, but all are severely ill with radiation poisoning. All seven men who went to the reactor that day, later on, would die of radiation poison shortly after returning home. Now, in a similar way, Entering into the divine presence of God on our own merit, carrying our own righteousness, is like those men going into the reactor core wearing those useless chemical suits. And death was the result. Isaiah says our righteousness are like filthy rags before God. Even the very best we could bring God would still fall short of his perfection. And so God knew if the people rushed into his presence, they would be destroyed. And so... God did not want this to happen to Israel. He didn't tell them to stay back. He didn't implement this seemingly harsh law because he wanted them to be destroyed. No, he wanted to protect them. He placed that barrier for their good. And this was the first protection of the law. The second protection was to protect the people from themselves. In verses 16 and 19, we read that on the third day, the people assembled at the base of the mountain. And then there was thunder, there was lightning, the sound of trumpets, and finally God himself descended in fire and smoke. And all the people trembled in fear. There are certain things in the Bible where when you read it, it's just describing what happens. And I feel like in some of these instances, inserting a, well, duh. How do you think you would respond to seeing fire and smoke and the earth shaking and trumpets blasting, would you be standing there casual thinking, oh yeah, this is no big deal? Or would you too be shaking in your boots? I think we'd be terrified. I think we'd be trembling. 
I think we might be doing some more things than that. We might need a change of underwear. (laughs) Nonetheless, the Bible just says the people trembled in fear, and I think, yeah, of course they did. And so finally, when God calls Moses to go up the mountain, and he goes up the mountain into this billowing fire and smoke, the people don't even know if they're ever going to see Moses come down again alive. In verses 21 to 25, we read that God again reiterated to Moses that the people should not approach the mountain or they would die. So why did God want to scare the living daylights out of the Israelites? Well, again, he did it to protect them. You see, God already knew full well how sinful and rebellious the people's hearts were. He had given them more than enough reasons, such as delivering them with a mighty hand from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, and the 101 other miracles he had already done for them. All of these things he had done to convince them, persuade them that he was trustworthy and that he was there for their good and that they would learn to love him, to trust him and obey him completely. But as we've already seen time and again, Israel failed to do this. Their love was purely a selfish, what have you done for me lately, God, sort of a love. Their trust was almost non-existent, as they constantly accused God of bringing them out of Egypt into the desert only to kill them. How many times didn't they say, did you bring us here for us to starve to death? Did you bring us here to kill us? Did you bring us here to destroy us? They clearly are lacking in trust towards God. And then finally, their obedience, well... What obedience? They were constantly one trial away from wanting to stone Moses and Aaron to death, take matters into their own hands, and return back to Egypt as though they'd be somehow welcome there after having Egypt's army drowned on their behalf. Deluded, to say the least. And yet, this was Israel. And God knew what these people were like. God knew that for a people like that, the only thing that was going to protect them from destroying themselves was a healthy dose of holy fear. And as we jump ahead to Exodus chapter 20 and verses 18 to 20, after God has given the Ten Commandments, we see this spelled out clearly. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So here we see that God's ultimate goal is that Israel would learn to obey him Motivated not by fear, but by love. Yes, for the short term, he had to give them a dose of holy fear in order for them to obey, to keep them from sinning. But the end he desired for them was love. In the same way God desires that we not kill other people or steal from them. Because motivated out of love for our fellow man, we don't want to harm them. But what happens if people are not motivated by love of their fellow man? What is there to stop someone in the nation of Canada from killing someone else and stealing all their stuff? Well, there's the law. And we have law enforcement officers 
to enforce and keep the law for those who aren't motivated by love for their fellow man. And so here we see that the law uses the fear of punishment to keep people from harming others. And in this way, the fear of punishment keeps people obeying the law. Even at the most basic of levels, why do you put on your seatbelt when you get into your vehicle or try not to speed too terribly much? Is it primarily because you're concerned for safety or is it primarily because you don't want to get a ticket? You see, even at this basic level, we have some motivation based out of the fear of punishment. And the Bible says repeatedly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so in this way, the law can protect us. But now onto something that the law can't do. While the law is put in place as a barrier, a fence to protect us, the law cannot make us love God. You see, God knew that the law alone was not enough. Because he didn't want just a nation of slaves who obeyed him solely out of fear. He wanted something much, much more. God wanted an intimate relationship with them, not based on fear, but love. I'm reminded of the news images that came out of North Korea in 2011. Following the death of their dear leader, Kim Jong-il. Some of you will recall this happened in 2011. Kim Jong-un, of course, as his successor, has been much in the news as of late. But when Kim Jong-il, his father, passed away in 2011, we saw images come out of North Korea where people were openly wailing and lamenting in the streets. From the highest level generals to the lowliest peasants, people were on their knees, seemingly in the throes of grief and agony at the death of their beloved leader. But of course, as the truth leaked out, we learned that everyone was being very closely monitored by the state police. And if anyone did not show sufficient levels of grief at the death of their dear leader, they would likely be sent to the concentration camps, as in fact many people were. You see, all of the outward displays of grief that the people had at the death of Kim Jong-il wasn't motivated by love, but fear. You see, true love can never be taken by force. It can only be freely given and freely received. 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. You see, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end. Love is the end. You see, true love can never be forced or or coerced. It is not something that can be demanded at the end of a sword. Obedience can be forced in this way, yes, but never true love. You see, God wanted his people to know just how much he loved them, so that someday they would come to love him freely in return. Then their obedience would not be motivated by the fear of punishment, but by love for God. And this is why before God even gave Israel the Ten Commandments, he made it very clear how special they were to him. Go back now to Exodus chapter 19 and verses 3 to 6. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now it's incredible to me to consider that out of all of the nations of the earth, all of the people of the world, God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his treasured possession. Now, we might well look at the grumbling and rebellious Israel and say, God, you made a poor choice. You could have picked just a little bit better, couldn't you? You know, when we think of all of the peoples of the world, all of the things that God could have chosen to be his ambassadors, his priests to the world, he could have chosen the angels, You know, they're not scarred by sin. They do exactly what he tells them to do without question or hesitation. They are in a constant course of worship towards him. But God didn't choose the angels, did he? Or God could have chosen the majestic stars as his treasured possession. They put off great amounts of light and energy. They're beautiful. But God didn't choose the stars. God chose Israel. And you know what? He chose us. He chose you and you and you and me to be his treasured possession. In Psalm chapter 8 and verses 3 to 6, the psalmist considers this, that God chose us out of everything he could have selected, that he would consider us. And listen to what the psalmist writes. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Incredible, isn't it? That God chose Israel and so too God has chosen us to be his treasured possession. It's just over a month ago now that Leanne and I welcomed our baby girl into the world. And now I haven't had anyone test me on my theory yet, but I believe that if any one of you or anyone else for that matter came up to me and offered me Bill Gates' bank account in exchange for Adeline, I would not even consider it for a moment. I wouldn't. Why? Because she is our treasured possession. She is a gift from God, something that no earthly treasure, no bank account, no matter how many zeros are in it, can compare to this gift. And you know what? That's just a shadow of the same attitude that God has towards each one of us as our Heavenly Father. Mark this down if you don't remember anything else from this morning. You are more important to God than the stars in the sky. You are more important than even the most important of God's angels. Even Gabriel and Michael are lesser in God's economy than you. Think about that. Isn't that incredible that God has chosen us, you and I, as his treasured possession out of everything in the entire universe? Incredible. Remember that from this morning. Consider that as you go through the week. But here's the catch. 
God will not force us into this special relationship with him. He only invites. And of course, his desire for Israel, as it is for us, is that we receive his invitation to enter into this covenant relationship and that we come to obey him not out of fear, but out of love. Now this brings us to the next thing that the law can do extremely well. While the law can't make us love God, the law can show us how sinful we are. In verses 3 to 6, we just read God's invitation to Israel to enter into this special covenant relationship with him. And then in verse 8, we read this. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. Now, of course, I'm not going to say that Israel's intentions weren't good, but I believe they had next to no clue as to what they were actually committing themselves to. I mean, really? Everything? You're going to obey everything that the Lord is commanding you all the time? How long did that last? How long did it take for Moses to be up on the mountain and come back down? About 40 days, I think it was. What did Moses see when he came down the mountain? Israel in a wild pagan orgy worshipping a golden calf. That's how long it took for Israel to break their word. We are going to do everything the Lord has commanded. In Romans chapter 3 verse 20, Paul writes this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You see, the more we try to keep the law perfectly, the more aware we become of just how fallen we truly are. The more you try to keep the letter of the law to the smallest details, the more you will realize how impossible that is to do. If you've never tried this before, I challenge you. Try to go this entire week without sinning a single time. Go for it. And and be honest with yourself. Be ruthless about it. I mean, not one fib, not one word spoken in anger, not one profanity, not one impure thought, nothing. Now, I'm not going to say it's impossible. I'm just going to say I've never been able to do it before. A man named Dr. Phil Williams puts it like this. The law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is. But it's not the broom that sweeps it up. I'm going to say that again. The law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is. But it's not the broom that sweeps it clean. You see, it's not the law's purpose to remove our sin and our guilt. It's the law's purpose to expose our sin and our guilt so that we'll see just how desperately we need God's grace and seek his forgiveness. So this is one thing the law is very good at. It shows us how sinful we are. And fourthly, the law can't save us. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 to 4 says this. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, underline that, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's human beings, to be a sin offering, the Lamb of God. And so he, being Jesus, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous 
requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here we see this highlighted phrase right in the middle of this passage, the law is powerless to save us. And the law isn't powerless because it's weak, but because we in our flesh are weak. You see, we simply cannot keep the law perfectly. And even if by some miracle we were able to keep the whole letter of the law from the day of our birth, all that would have been was our outward actions. And that's like the Pharisees. They were always concerned about keeping the letter of the law on the outside. But Jesus pointed to their hearts and said, you're like whitewashed tombs, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You know, the outside of your dish is clean, but inside you're full of festering sores. You see, even keeping the letter of the law would not change our hearts. The law is simply powerless to save us for this reason. And so God sent the one and only man to this world who could keep the whole letter of the law, both in spirit, in truth, and in action, perfectly. One man who could do it, his own son, Jesus Christ, the perfect one, who not only kept but fulfilled every requirement of the law to the very last jot and iota, both the letter and the spirit, Jesus kept perfectly. And so now if we go back to the K-19 Widowmaker illustration. Remember how the the submariners entered the nuclear reactor wearing those useless chemical suits? They put them on anyways, knowing they would be useless, just to make themselves feel better. That's what the law is like. But mark this. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be like those submariners putting on the proper radiation suit, enabling them to go into the nuclear reactor. So too, when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it enables us to enter God's holy, perfect presence. And rather than being condemned and destroyed, as our sin and our wickedness deserves, we now enter with confidence. Why? Because as Paul declared so clearly, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the righteous requirements of the law are now fully met in us. There are some amazing phrases in the Bible that we don't underline often enough, and this is one of them. They are fully met in us. The law hasn't partially been fulfilled in us. No, fully. Why? Because of Christ Jesus. We can go up Mount Sinai and enter into the Shekinah glory presence of God wearing the Lord Jesus Christ. No condemnation. The law holds no more fear. And yes, the law can't save us, but Jesus Christ can. He is the perfect one. And hidden in him, we are perfect in God's sight. And so I hope that today, as we consider what the law can and can't do, One of the things I pray it does is it increases your thankfulness and appreciation to God for his incredible gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that today we are reminded just how incredible your gift of salvation is. That the law highlights for us just how far we have fallen from your glory. Just how short we have truly come of living up to your expectations. 
And as we look at Israel and we see how badly they fell time and time again, it's easy for us to point a finger and realize there's three pointing right back at us. How often don't we do the same thing, Lord? How often don't we renounce this sin, repent of it, and say, I'm never going to do it again. And yet the very next day or the next week, we find ourselves right there again. And so we thank you, Lord, that it's not up to us in trying and striving to keep the law perfectly that's going to save us. No, Lord, that is useless, less than useless. Our righteous acts even are filthy rags before you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it is simply by believing in you through faith, putting on you as our righteousness, that the requirements of the law are fully met in us so that we can enter God's presence without condemnation, without fear, and with great rejoicing. And so, Lord, I pray that today we would see the law for what it can and can't do and recognize that it is there to protect us and that as we seek to obey your law, we realize that that is how life works best and we live under your blessing. And so, Father, I pray that today you would strengthen us by your spirit, that we would no longer live by the spirit of the flesh but by the spirit of God and that you would empower us to obey you not out of fear but out of love in every way. We commit ourselves to you to this end. In Jesus' name, amen.